0: Please have a seat and open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22, just in time for tax season. Uh, We'll be looking at Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. As I was preparing this week for filling the pulpit, I was looking at this passage, and this passage uh, does two things, as our Lord always does. Our Lord never separates eschatology from ethics. That is, the preaching of Jesus from the get-go is repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He's telling us about eschatology, about the kingdom of God. We're not going to get into details about what your views are on eschatology, but the big Christian hope that there will come a day when this present evil age will be converted and transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. Jesus' message is about that. And the passage we're looking at today, of course, has to do with eschatology, that that great final day when final things shall become reality. Uh, But it also has to do with ethics. And we're going to focus on the eschatological import of the passage. That is, what is he telling us about the kingdom and the importance of it? Um, But certainly another sermon could be a given on the ethics of the kingdom. Hear now the reading of the word of God from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Uh, Pray that this would be a time where we come under it, where our thoughts come more in conformity with your thoughts. Pray, Father, that you would transform us by your spirit and by your word that we might be fit for every good work that we might love our neighbors and that we might love you our lord and savior we love you and we pray in jesus name amen our text today is the account of a pharisaical counterattack on jesus earlier in the gospel of matthew we see that jesus tells uh, the Pharisees, that the kingdom of God would be taken from them and given to a people who will produce the fruit of it. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees jointly come together and they construct a wonderful catch-22 situation for Jesus. It's their desperate attempt to incriminate Jesus. To malign his good name at the least and to do away with him at the best. In short, our text presents us with a test for Jesus. Now, Jesus, as you'll recall, right from the get-go in the Gospels, he is no stranger to tests. Immediately after his baptism and entry into public ministry, he encounters a testing at the hand of Satan, where he undergoes 40 days of wilderness testing. The threefold temptation in the wilderness that Jesus triumphed over proved that he is the true, obedient son of God, unlike Adam and unlike Israel who broke God's covenant. Not only was Jesus tested at the beginning of his earthly ministry, but as we see today, in the midst of his ministry, he's tested. The temptations that Jesus experienced had no bounds in this sin-cursed world. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, we saw that even Peter, after his good confession, given divine revelation that he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living man, uh, Son of the living God, uh, we see that Jesus very quickly soon thereafterwards, has to tell Peter something else. Not praising him in terms of catching on to who he is, but rather, Peter goes ahead and rebukes Jesus, right? In Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus speaks about his death and resurrection, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. That will never happen to you. Jesus' response to Peter is, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. And that's just an interesting thought for us, that Peter, uh, catching on to the ministry of Christ, to catching on to the fact that Uh, The Lord of glory is in his midst, uh, catching on that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, he's immediately able to be tainted. Now certainly Satan is active, and Jesus points that out, but there is a foothold in Peter's mind. The foothold in Peter's mind is that he has in mind the things of men. There is a foothold in Peter's mind there. So if Satan gets to Peter, in trying to dissuade Jesus from his single focus for the cross. It's no surprise, therefore, to see that Satan's malevolent will is exercised through the religious and political leaders of Israel. Notice the guise under which this test comes in our passage. Satan, having exhausted all his resources after the testing in the wilderness, now tests Christ, not face to face, but through human actors. The protagonists in this test are the Pharisees' disciples, And the Herodians, a motley crew of co-belligerents, united in their hate for Jesus. Now, you might say that they came to him with flowery language. But really, it's eloquent hate that they have for Jesus. With evil intent, they come to Jesus with accolades concerning his character. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. What teacher doesn't want to hear that? That's great. Boost my ego, right? For you're not partial to any. Then tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or no? So they come in appearance as humble truth seekers. Those who've come to a wise teacher for a Torah or a ruling on the law, and they frame their catch 22 situation question in such a way that Jesus is to give a yes or a no answer. If Jesus applies in the affirmative, he would be uh, alienating many Jews for many reasons, as we'll see. For example, for some Jews, the zealots in particular, they believe that it was against the law of God to pay taxes to a foreign ruler, and they would likely point to the Bible for their justification. They probably cite uh, Deuteronomy 17, 15, which says, "...be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers." Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite, right? It's verifiably true that uh, Caesar is not a brother Israelite. Why should we give him taxes? The reasoning might go. The Jews also had a knee-jerk reaction against paying taxes due to the image imprinted on the coin and the inscription on it. So there's a, an image and there's some writing on the coin. The image of Caesar on the coin was interpreted as a violation of the second commandment because the second commandment does forbid graven images. In addition, the inscription on the coin was outright blasphemous because the coin says right on there that Caesar is son of God and high priest. And that, of course, is something no Jew could agree with. If Jesus says yes to their question, the Pharisees would have proved in their eyes that Jesus was a lawbreaker. If they could prove him to be a lawbreaker, then Jesus would lose favor amongst the people. On the other hand, if Jesus answers no, he's going to be alienating the Herodians. The Herodians were a group that supported Herod's dynasty, people who ruled over Palestine at the time. Okay? Herod had been installed by Rome's favor and consequently did Rome's bidding and tax collecting. So the Herodians continued this tradition and they supported the poll tax. So whether Jesus says yes or no, he's in trouble with someone. If he says yes, the religious authorities will scorn him with all the influence they can muster. If he says no, then the government will have grounds to convict him as a revolutionary and kill him. Because governments, quite frankly, don't like it when you get in the way of revenue. So the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees figure that they have Jesus on the horns of an insurmountable dilemma. Yet our Lord, as always, sees through their facade." Jesus says, aware of their malice, he says, "'Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax.' And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, "'Whose likeness and inscription is this?' And they said, "'Caesar's.' And he said to them, "'Therefore render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and, the things that are, and to God the things that are God's.'" As Jesus so often does, he does not answer the question with the options that are given. Jesus is a fan of the tertium quid, right? There's another way, right? Um, Jesus does not conform to his questioner's methods. Now, the fact of the matter is, as sinful humankind, we are so frail at our core that we often see options that are all wrong, okay? And such is the case here. Now, mind you, the Lord Jesus is not skillfully dodging their question here. The Lord who told us to let our yes be yes and our no be no, otherwise anything else comes from the devil, uh, is not saying that his yes is yes and his no is no. That is not what he's doing. He's not seeking to prolong his life a few more days. He is, in fact, true in teaching the word of God and truth, as these hypocrites had said. But he's getting to the heart of the matter, and he's exposing their ignorance to the things of the Spirit of God. So the likeness and the inscription that are upon the currency do mark it off as Caesar's property and work. This is why Jesus tells his interrogators to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He doesn't tell them to give anything to Caesar, which is what they had asked, but he tells them to render unto Caesar, to pay what they owed, to legitimately transfer whatever uh, is his to claim. So Jesus, of course, here undoubtedly is affirming the equity of paying taxes to magistrates that demand it. Let me say that again. Jesus demands that we pay our taxes. Listen to what Jesus' apostles said in regards to the Christian's relationship to the government. The apostle Paul in Romans 13.1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. thirteen six Paul says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Therefore, if we don't pay our taxes, we're disobeying God and will rightfully shovel the wrath of the IRS into our laps. Worse yet, as God's adopted children, we give opportunity for God's name to be blasphemed amongst unbelievers. That's not as though Jesus is saying something new here. In our Westminster Larger Catechism, when commenting on the fifth commandment, the whole idea that we are to give proper respect to our parents, it unpacks that. It says, And this is uh, in answer to the question who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment. The larger catechism rightly states, By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Jesus, as the sinless son of God, born under the law, keeps the law, and specifically teaches us here that we are to honor the civil government by paying what we owe. Now, of course, the apostles are quick to disobey the law when they tell them to quit preaching the gospel. Whether we should obey you or man, you be the judge of that. But we're not going to take the import of these passages and let them die the death of a thousand qualifications. Absent the government forcing you to sin, you obey. Now, we've seen that the things of Caesar include taxes, include rendering under him his coins, to be sure. Yet, in the New Testament, when we find this phrase, the things of, it doesn't really mean the things of in the sense of stuff, right? In terms of property, in terms of belongings. It's not talking about things necessarily like coins. Earlier, we reviewed Jesus' rebuke of Peter, where Jesus tells Peter, get thee behind me, Peter. Once while witnessing with a friend, somebody came up and started speaking in tongues at us. And my friend's response was, get thee behind me, Satan. I wouldn't recommend taking the Lord's words in, in that way. But um, the issue with Peter is he has in mind not the things of God. Jesus has in mind The death and the burial and the resurrection of the Son of Man for the redemption of sinners. Peter is concerned about saving his skin. Peter certainly loves the Savior, but he wants him to preserve his life. Jesus isn't referring to the items of God and the items of men when we look at these passages. He's looking at the concerns of God and the concerns of men. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7.32 and 33 when a similar phrase is used. And of course, that's the passage talking about marriage, right? Paul says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Thus, the things of Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God's refer to the concerns associated with the person you're subservient to and the obligations they place upon you. By implication, then, we must render unto Caesar more than our wallets, if he requires it of us, and if it's a reasonable demand. Whatever our concerns and obligations are to this nation in which we live, we must fulfill them. We must render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Yet Jesus doesn't stop there. The Herodians could not walk off and imagine that the great teacher was on their side. truth is that Jesus is not concerned about a pre-packaged present evil age set of politics or economics. Jesus has not come with a big rubber stamp to rubber stamp your Marxism or your capitalism or whatever it is. He has not come to do that. Politics and economics in this present evil age are not what Jesus came to enforce. Rather, Jesus stands, much like in the day of Joshua, stands as the commander of the army of the Lord, of hosts, and declares that he's on nobody's side but God's, not the Pharisees, not the Zealots, not the Herodians. He has come to do the Father's will. John 6.39 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of them that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. Resurrection life is the economy that Jesus is concerned about. Doing the Father's will is what Jesus is concerned about. Bringing a people into his Father's kingdom is what Jesus is about. So not only does Jesus say, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but he says, render unto God the things that are God's. Jesus, having recognized the God-given authority of Caesar, states, and sets forth his greater point. And that shouldn't fall on deaf ears. His greater point is giving unto God the things that are God's. The Jews who held the tax question as a serious ethical debate quickly showed how compromised they were. Within moments of being asked for this coin, this hideous thing that says that Caesar is the son of God, right? He's the Pontifus Maximus. He's, he's a takes no time and they can produce this blasphemous, hideous thing because it's in their pockets. They show how compromised they were. With relative ease, they find a coin and it shows that already they're all too adept at doing business with Caesar's money. The big ethical dilemma here is not whether we should give some money to Caesar or no. The big ethical dilemma, the big moral dilemma is whether we will render the homage, love, and obedience to God that is due him. Just as Caesar had made his likeness upon his property and imprinted his name on it, so too God has done the same with you, with all of humanity. God claims ownership over humanity due to his creation. But for you, we will see there's another claim God has on you. At the very beginning, when God makes man, He makes them in His image and likeness to reflect His glory. And that reflection of God's glory, the imaging of God, is not just a noun, as though it's something existing by means of a stamp, but it's a verb. We're called upon to actively reflect the uh, glory of God as His image bearers. And not only that, but image bearers as the pinnacle of God's six-day creation, right? Right? We are the pinnacle of his creation, and we're designed to render homage, love, and obedience to our creator, King. Yet we know that Jesus' interrogators in this passage don't do any of that. Their big question here, besides their eloquent hate in hoping to string up Jesus, um, their primary concern is what they can do with a chunk of change. Their service to God is nowhere in sight. In fact, Matthew 12 tells us that they want to kill him. Now, it's easy to beat up on uh, sinners that lived thousands of years ago, but are we not the same in many ways? Don't we fill our time seeking out the things of men? Don't we ponder how we can keep our money, our time, and our talent to ourselves? Don't we secretly harbor in our hearts the thought that life without God would be better, because we could get away with our depraved desires. In fact of the matter is often how little we are concerned with the things of God. In the fact of the matter, in regards to paying taxes, Caesar's coins return to him easily enough. Yet the things of God are not brought to bear in our minds with such ease. Even when in the midst of glory like Peter, receiving divine revelation... Uh, We are quick to ponder the things of men, not of God. I know I've shared with you before, during divine worship on a Lord's Day, I'll think about the most stupid things, rebuilding carburetors. Carburetors are a good thing, it's a great invention. Uh, But what does that have to do with uh, this time where saints and angels are gathered and where we are participating in divine worship I don't know, maybe there'll be Holly 4130s in heaven. Um, that makes sense to about two of you. Uh, yeah, it, it's not worthy of what we're doing. I'm not saying carburetors are sinful by any means. See what happens when you get off script. Okay. Indeed. Mankind's fall into sin and death reaches us all. Not just the Pharisees, not just the zealots, not just the Herodians, not just Peter in a moment of weakness, but all of us. By nature, we're all children of wrath, tarnished image bearers who cannot do what we were created to do. Yet we're still called to do it. God's law still stands. We're still called to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but in our natural state, we can't. And so this brings Paul to ask, who who shall save us from this body of sin and death? And that's as true of the unbeliever as it is of the believer. It's only through the resurrected Christ that we begin to render unto God the things of God. Our natural minds will never truly submit to Caesar or to God. Sure, we'll speak of Caesar or God in flattering terms like the Pharisees and the Herodians did to Jesus. Yet just like them, our hearts are far from God and Caesar. We need a new heart. We need resurrection life. Colossians 3.10 says of the believer, you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and you've put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Beloved, it is as you are being renewed in the image of God that we can even approximate the concern with the things of God and render unto him the obedience that he is due. Likewise, it's only as we bear the imprint of God that we can finally have the things of God on our mind and do the things of God permanently. And that is true of you as you trust in Christ. Just as certainly as Caesar's image was imprinted on a coin, God's image is imprinted upon you. Now what of that blasphemous inscription upon the Roman coin? Jesus has made it clear in his language that he's referring to the fact that, you know, that there is an image that matters and that's the image of God built into you and the image of God being recreated in you as you come to Christ in faith. But what about that counterpart, right? Jesus points out there's a blasphemous inscription, uh, at least it's implied there, uh, on the coin. Well, the inscription that God places upon you is revealed to us in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. John in his vision says, oh, this is Jesus, but he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Beloved, the name of God has already been placed upon you on at baptism. When you're baptized, you receive the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but there is a day when the name of God will be inscribed upon you in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus turns it around. It's not about chunk of change. It's about are you in tune with the things of God? Are you rendering your obedience and service to the God who made you, to the God who redeemed you as you come to him in faith in Christ. Friends, if you know not this renewed image of God that I'm speaking of, I beg you as Christ's ambassador, be reconciled to God. God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. beloved. The Lord, in telling us to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's, has called us to a new life, a life of service centered on God and his kingdom. Do you hear that call? The Pharisees and the disciples in our passage, the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians, the passage tells us they went away amazed. Maybe they were pondering, how did he squirm out of that one. Our eloquent hate was well-crafted. Man, he's good. I don't know what they were thinking, but I do know that they went away. Beloved, having heard Jesus in his word this day, do not go away. Do not go away. Rather be like Jacob, who will wrestle with the Lord, and don't let him go until he blesses you when you see the Lord and giver of life, the proper response is not to go away. It is to cling. Cling to Christ by faith. And beloved, as you cling to Christ by faith, as you've been blessed, having been recreated in the image of God, having been given a new life, serve God out of gratitude. And in serving God, respect his ordinances. Render unto Caesar that which you owe. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. Uh, We thank you that it confronts us. Uh, We become complacent, we get comfortable. We craft idols in our own image, idols that are something we think we can please, something we think we can control. But Father, the truth is you are the Holy One of Israel and you shall not be controlled. We can't box you. We can't craft arguments by which we can say, gotcha. You are the one with whom we have to do and you call us on your terms. And Father, the amazing fact is is that you provide terms that are agreeable, that we lay down our weapons. You've told us that as we come to you on your terms, there's peace. So Father, we pray for all of us that we would come to you on your terms, that we would not craft idols, but rather we would embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name, and grateful for this time for uh, tithes and offerings. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.